You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Chip Kidd is the author and designer of Batman Collected, Batman Animated, and Mythology, the DC Comics art of Alex Ross. From 2002 to 2007, he was the founding art director at Vertical Inc., a publisher specializing in translated Japanese title. His new book is Bat Manga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. Thank you for joining me, Chip. Uh, well, thank you. Chip, I-, I wonder if you care to tell me when and how and in what form did you first personally encounter Batman? Oh, just Batman in general? Yeah, Batman in general. Oh, well, I was born in 1964, so I was two years old when the uh, TV show came out with Adam West. So, believe it or not, that's not too young to to be affected by it and and to uh, sort of get hooked into it. So, you first saw Adam West, and did you start reading the comics afterwards? Well, again, I was two, so... uh, I wasn't quite reading yet that I know of, but I had a, my older brother was two years older, and uh, he he of course you know I wanted to do whatever he wanted to do, and he was into Batman as well, and um, he probably was reading the comics at that point. But I, I remember they sort of like they came with it very soon, and our dad would torture us with these stories of having Superman number one and Batman number one when he was a kid. So they were prone to to getting us comic books. Wow! So your parent, your dad, was a comics book collector back in the '60s, then or before? Well, no, we're talking the <laughs> this is the '30s. The '30s. Um, yeah, he was born in '28. So Superman debuted in '38. He would have been ten. Um, but you know, there's a difference between having the comics when you were a kid and being a collector. And of course, the classic story is, you know, there were the paper drives for the war, and that's where all the comics went. Well, when did you start reading Batman comics and become more interested in them beyond just uh, watching the TV show with your big brother? Oh, I, I, it must have been not too long after that. Uh, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Well, what? who was doing the comics then? Well, it, it was an interesting period for, for the comics at that point because, you know, the TV show introduced the concept of camp into people's living rooms mm-hmm. um and and the 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 comics sort of went with that for a little bit but then very soon after you had writers like Denny O'Neill and artists like Neil Adams who basically reacted against that and the way they did that was to basically say okay we're going to we actually want to try and take the character back to his roots which is basically of a of you know, it's sort of like a dark, avenging, you know, uh, you know, detective, but also that this isn't a comedy. You know, it's an adventure. It's a quote serious adventure. So, and of course, then twenty years after that, Frank Miller really took that concept even much further with with the Dark Knight. But growing up, they had many different artists doing Batman. Like I said, Neil Adams. They had a guy named Irv Novick. My favorite was a guy named Marshall Rogers, and and many many more. I mean, many more than I can can think of right now. Well, tell me, did you start collecting comics as a kid? 
Yes. Whether it was comics or toys or whatever, I was a saver. I was not, I, I didn't like to throw things away and I didn't like to, quote, use things up. So, um, you know, I still have most of my comics from when I was a kid. Of course, they're in terrible condition, but in the last 10 or 15 years is the, the whole cult of the comics collectors who go out of their way to, to in, literally encase them into protective plastic boxes um, so that you actually can't even touch them, which, which I think actually is, is rather unfortunate. So I wasn't a collector that way, but I was a collector in terms of a keeper. Well, when you, uh, at, at, once you start, you know, start your career as a, as a book designer, mm -hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about how your experience in the comics informed your career as a designer. Well, it's it's funny. I used to get that question a lot, and I used to say, I don't think it did at all. Until a couple of years ago, one interviewer pointed out that, you know, on most of your book covers, you have a real separation, what I call separation of type and state. And that is the typography sort of comfortably lives in its own visual space on on the picture plane and then the image if there if there is an image is very much in its own way separate from it not that i particularly feel i have any discernible style but they did point that out and they said you know that that you're kind of des describing a comics panel right there in terms of captions and what the characters are saying they're completely compartmentalized from the image and I think there really was something to that, but I think it was—I think it was very—it um, was very subconscious. Well, when did you decide to take on working Batman professionally? I guess right. Is, is um, question. And why? Well, why? Because uh, you know, there certainly there was this. Ever since I was a little kid, I was enamored of this world, and I guess therefore, of this business of, of this kind of mainstream superhero comic books. But again, like the, the, the concept of actually trying to get a job at DC Comics didn't really occur to me. That, that seemed like running away with the to the circus. <laughs> um, and so I was actually a little bit more, quote, practically minded than that. Although, you know, all through college, I was working various comic book themes into um, my graphic design schoolwork, uh, almost to the point where the teachers were saying, you know what, you need to expand. Uh, you, you know, you can do the comic book stuff. We've seen that. Now, you know, <laughs> lay off it for the next project. Did you lay off it? Yeah. Yeah. I, and they had a point. It's like, look, if, 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 you, if you don't really want to go into comics, then you, you're, a portfolio filled with comic book-related work is not going to help you. <laughs> and I think they were right. I think they were right. Um, and, you know, ironically, here I ended up at Knopf Publishing, which is the, you know, arguably the apex of, quote, you know, quality literature, um, which I believe it is. Mm -hmm. So there I'm doing that and uh, doing covers for them. And I've been there actually almost... We're zeroing in on a quarter century now. Wow, that's a long time. It is, well, you know, it is and it isn't. I mean, I, it, it certainly doesn't often feel that long. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so here I am doing covers for John Updike and Cormac McCarthy and, and uh, all this kind of thing. And then I met a woman named Jeanette Kahn at an art opening. And I don't know if you know who she is. She was, for many years, she was literally the face of DC Comics. She was the president 
of DC Comics all through the 70s into the 80s. And, and in that sense, really broke a lot of ground for, for women in comics. And so I met Jeanette at an art opening. And uh, the, the, the gallery owner was a friend of mine and introduced me. And she was all talking me up. And, and then, I don't know, a couple of weeks after that, I get a phone call from an editor at DC uh, named Steve Corte. They were publishing a novel by a guy named Andrew Vax very well-known uh, detective, cr- you know, crime novelist. Who has his own uh, sort of vigilante hero who's about as more dangerous than Batman. Well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, somebody put two and two together and yeah. said, all right, you know, one of Andrew's uh, big, uh, very noble causes is fighting the um, child sex trade in Thailand. So that's what this book was. It's like, okay, now Batman's going to take on the, the child sex trade in Thailand. And Jeanette had remembered that she met me and that I did book covers. And so she told Steve to call me to work on this. And that was that was my entree into it, actually. And also, quite coincidentally, I had been doing all of Andrew Vax's covers for Knopf at the time. So whether whether this was pure coincidence or not, I don't know. But that was my entree into it. I wanted it to look I wanted this book cover to really look not like a drawing of Batman, but like Batman himself. And at the time, there was all this Batman merchandise that was out from the fi- from the first film, from Tim Burton's film. And one was a very, I thought, realistic looking doll that actually might have been from the Japanese market. I'm not sure. But so I, then I enlisted this photographer, Jeff Spear, to sort of light the and the doll and use selective focus to really make it look like a real person and uh which is actually fairly easy to do and so this was sort of you know like you know, like wow who's the guy in the costume and it's like hey it's a doll you know and then that led to me proposing to steve i said look you know you don't really know too much about me or or what I do, but I, what I really want to do is I um, I want to do a, a book on Batman toys because I've collected Batman toys ever since I was a kid, and and uh, this has been a lifelong dream of mine. And I, I also, as a fan, I knew that no one had done this yet, which is very important. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so he said, okay, you know, put together a proposal, and we'll see what we can do. And so, so I did, and and that became really my first book that I wrote. I mean, it's obviously, it's a visual book, but, but, but Batman Collected. Your new book, Batmanga, is, is really, really interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this book came, up, came about. Well, it has a very complicated sort of what, I call, what we in the biz call origin story. Uh, it actually has <laughs> several origin stories, but... Um, well, tell us. All right. Well, if you want to start at the beginning, the, we go back to the Batman TV show with Adam West. It comes out in nineteen in I believe January of nineteen sixty six. It is a huge hit, not only nationally but globally. It is exported all over the world, not insignificantly to Japan. And they were very intrigued by it. And there was a there, there's a, a, a manga publisher that is Japanese comics publisher called Shonen King, which is still very much around uh, and thriving and functioning. And 
they were the only company and the only publisher that approached DC Comics at the time, and they said, we want to license the rights to Batman and Robin so that we can write and draw our own stories here in Japan for our audience. And someone at DC, I don't know who, said, okay. I mean, they, had, they obviously had some sort of foreign license department, and that's where that went. And so they did, and they, for a year, a solid year, April 66 to May of 1967, an artist named Jiro Kawata was hired to r write and draw Batman and Robin stories for the audience of, of Shonen King, i.e. little Japanese boys. Kawada was a terrific choice. He was a co-creator of a very well-known, at least at the time, Japanese superhero called Eight Man which was eventually ripped off uh, to become the movie RoboCop. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's the total same concept. In the first episode, or um, Detective Tobor is uh, shot dead in a, in a confrontation with some criminals, and along comes Professor Genius next to his lifeless body and, and takes him into his lab and transfers his brain into an android body uh, that he has created. And he had tried it seven times previously with other people, and it did not work. But this time it did, so it's Eighth Man. <laughs> and that really is a RoboCop, isn't it? Boy, that's, yeah. uh, that's amazing. And yeah. no, no credit from the Verhoeven people that I ever remember. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm actually not extremely well-versed on RoboCop. At some point, who knows, maybe they acknowledged it. I don't know. But it, it's kind of shocking. Kuwata is a really fascinating guy himself. I mean, yeah. he was a pro at 13. Yes. Tell, tell me a little bit more about him. Well, you know, it's funny. All right, well, he, continuing the story. So he did these stories. Mm -hmm. They came and went. They, it, it was bizarre. They, they essentially evaporated into the pop culture memory hole. Ultimately, I would say they probably felt that the whole thing was worth giving a try, but it, it, it just didn't catch on. It didn't catch on with their audience for whatever reason. Um, American superheroes are actually a, a fairly hard sell in Japan. But the TV si series did well? Mm, again, it was gone in a year. So, oh, okay. so what does that say? Not, I mean, not it, smashing it, success. Well, and even in America, it only lasted two years. So, you know, I think it was this sort of like poof, boom, everybody loved it for, uh, for six months and then, and then lost interest or it's like, oh, let's move on or, you know. And Kawada went on to do whatever else he was going to do and, and et cetera. And so about 10 years ago, uh, via a comic book artist named David Mazzucchelli, who's uh, very well known in the mainstream world for being the artist of Batman Year One, which mm -hmm. became the basis of Batman Begins. Right. And he, um, he went to Japan on a fellowship, on a, comi on a comics artist fellowship, and he's a good friend, and he came back, and he said, did you know that they did original Batman and Robin stories in the 60s in manga? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, and I think it was this guy, Jiro Kawada. And he said, when I was over there, somebody from Shonen King sort of put, extended an invitation to me to come to their offices and, and visit their archives and take a look at it. And he said, I didn't have time, uh, but now I regret it. I would have liked to. And so this gave me some sort of new mission 
like you know i became like the indiana jones of of uh forgotten japanese batman comics and so long story short uh all of a sudden then ebay is created and i i met another collector via ebay a guy named saul ferris who is a, a lawyer in chicago now, was he selling comics or trying to buy them? Well, no, it's it's actually a much more interesting story than that. And I don't know, you know, t- how much you want to test your listeners' patience. But um, Oh, tell us. Well, basically, I was bidding on a Japanese tin Batmobile from the 60s. I was well aware of the toys. And there's a, there's a section in Batman collected on the 60s Japanese Batman toys. And I do a whole dissertation, or, you know, dissertation. I do a, a little essay about how much I love them because... You know, it's this cross-cultural moment where you've got, you know, the, the American and the Japanese coming together. And so I knew about this. And so I was bidding on this thing because I hadn't seen it before. And there's, you know, there's pretty intense bidding. I win it for, for a not insignificant amount of money. And so uh, as soon as I had won it, I get an email from this person called I Collect Batman. And the subject line <laughs> the subject line in my memory was, you got reamed. And so I open it up, and it's, he said, hi, you know, you don't know me. My name's Saul Ferris, and I, I collect Japanese Batman stuff, and I'm really into it. And he said, I have to tell you that that, that seller is not to be trusted, and um, this is a modified thing that he's made. It's not a legit toy. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a fake. Yeah. It, it, for, for all intents and purposes, it was a counterfeit thing. Wow. For a lot of money. So I was like, wow, thank you so much. And so I wrote back to the seller saying, forget it. And uh, and he was pissed. He, he was mad. But anyway, so then I went back to, to this gentleman, Saul, and I said, thank you so much. And I said, oh, you know, by the way, this is who I am and this is what I do. And then he sent an email back. Said, oh, my God, I have Batman collected. I just love it. It's so great. And so, you know, this like bromance started of, you know, a bonding over this stuff. And as it turned out, I mean, I had some contact. I had contacts in Japan for the toys. Um, but in terms of like the comics... No. And um, and so he he actually had a far more extensive and more effective contacts there than I did. And so he started getting these issues of, of Shonen King. But, you know, they're rare over there. They're rare in Japan, so which makes them infinitely rarer here. Well, I've got to ask, how much does how much is a copy of one of these magazines going to uh, comics going to cost me if I decide to raid my piggy bank? Well, <laughs> it varies, but mm-hmm. um it can get north of 500 bucks wow, real quick. Mm. Um and uh I mean, I've gotten lucky on a couple of things via Japanese eBay. Mm-hmm. But really, um, you know, the thing is, they were anthologies. Mm. So you've got work in them by Osama Tetsuka. You've got work by... Um, oh, wow. You've got early ad- Adventures of Speed Racer. So various collectors are vying for these things for various reasons. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Which really drives the sure. interest the interest in them. And, you know, these, these auctions, depending on who's paying attention... You know, yeah, it can be a lot of money. It can be a lot of money. So, so you know, also, you know, like, footnote, 
we actually spent a lot more money putting this book together than we will probably ever see <laughs> getting out of it, which is which is fine. But you know, it really is. It's really more a labor of love than anything else. Well, so you decided to go on Japanese eBay mm-hmm. and with the help of Saul mm-hmm. and started uh, buying uh, buying up the books. Yes. And did you buy more Japanese toys too? Because there are quite a few. Uh, pictures in there of some Japanese toys. Yeah. I mean, the book really was going to start out as a sort of Japanese version of Batman Collected that had some comics in it. Mm -hmm. And then as Saul was finding more and more of the comics, it became more about the comics and less about the toys. I would like to do a volume two because there's so much, there's enough for another full-length book at least. Um, And we actually cut out a lot of the toys. There's some really amazing things that we just you know, it was awful. It was like little Sophie's choices I was having to make with, <laughs> with the material. Um, but, but I should also then further elaborate, you know, like meanwhile, while Saul's getting the comics, I'm sort of putting the word out to some of my friends. And I have an editor friend at Rizzoli, a guy named Ian Luna, who is very keyed into contemporary Japanese culture. I mean, he lives in, in New York, but, but uh, he said, he said, look, I'm going to put the word out and we'll see if we can find Jiro Kawada. Um, he is alive, and and uh, it shouldn't be too hard to track him down. And long story short, we did. And there was a there was a woman in in Ian's Tokyo office who had an interest in it. And basically, she said, you know, he we found him. He's three hours north of Tokyo. He's seventy three years old, and sort of his health is mezzo mezzo, but he's functioning. And and uh, I'll go visit him. Wow. And so she did. And she said he's very interested in that you want to do this book. And, and, but I think also, I think he was very surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, you know, why would, why would anyone care about this? Because for him, I mean, if you think about it, if he really was drawing comics professionally nonstop from age 13 mm-hmm. up and until who knows age 60 or whatever the idea that like one year out of his career based on what for him is not a very interesting or perhaps american superhero it's like why (laughs) and um well this is an interesting you know kind of clash clash of cultural perceptions too because to us batman is huge there's all the movies and and it's you know loomed large since the the tv series so that's a fascinating cultural perception too. Well, it is, and and the other thing that occurred to be more after the book was done than it did at the time I was putting it together is, you know, you put it into historical context. This is barely two decades after World War II, mm-hmm. which is not a huge amount of time. No, no, not not for a, a country devastated by exactly exactly, uh, and so. Whether that informed what Kawada did or not, I can't. I I can't really tell. It's just something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk about uh, the the next step in the process, which is taking the the photographs. You, yes, you, you had Jeff Spear taking the photographs mm-hmm. uh, of the of the toys and the comics, and they're very separate. Uh, um, Two different, very different things. Take photographs yeah. up. Tell me about taking pictures of the toys first. Well, you know, it. Going back to Batman Collected, I think what surprised a lot of people was the way we we shot a lot of the toys in mm-hmm. that. Um, 
and it's it's going back to our original thing that we did for Andrew Vax, and uh, and it's not just we didn't I didn't want to make it into a catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's not a Sears catalog. It's it's actually a very sort of personal look at these toys, and I wanted the I wanted to to make the viewer see them as I saw them, mm-hmm. which often meant blowing them up, you know, many many hundreds of times bigger than than they actually are um where we were able to get examples of original art to really zero in on it so you can like literally see the brushwork on a on a on a comic strip drawing which of course you're not supposed to mm-hmm. you know that's the whole point of, of, of doing a mechanical line shot of of some of this work is that it actually takes the artist's hand out of it oh interesting and i wanted to put it back in and so you know i I think more people liked it than didn't like it, but the people that didn't like it were really sort of like, this is really weird and we don't understand why we just can't see the toy, you know, like fully perfectly lit, uh, you know. On a white tablecloth. Right, on a white tablecloth. And um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's applying that uh, sensibility to, to, to this stuff. Now, I, I think I did pull back some... So that if if it's a, you know, there's the, one of my favorite things is Batman is in a tin tank. Oh, they, I love they, that tin they tank. They made yes. a tank, <laughs> and uh, you know, I really want you to be able to see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, again, the, the, there's ways to light it so that so that it you know it has really some drama and and some sort of actually inner life to it. Well, one of the things I think that's interesting about the the interstitial visuals in this book with the toys is there there's a certain storytelling aspect in there, and, and it's an emotional story. And it's because you bring things up, blow things up so big sometimes, it's really uh, forceful. I mean, y- you feel some of the anger and some of the joy uh, that these toys can inspire and bring. Well, that's very nice to hear. It really is, because it's hard... That was very well articulated, and it's it's hard for me to sort of like step out of it and say things like that. But I love the way you just said that because <laughs> it is because it is true. Um, and uh, I mean, the other thing for what it's worth is this is the first book that I've ever designed that goes right to left, and so I had to change. You know, I had to flip my head around literally. Now, yeah, that that's a very I didn't realize this was your first attempt, your first uh, work uh, in a in a manga style. Uh, could yeah. you talk about that? Uh, how do the the publishers deal with it? Are they that must give them some uh, convulsions as well? Um, you know, the ground has been broken, mm-hmm. um, and as you had said in your introduction, I I uh, I was the founding art director for a Japanese American publisher called Vertical, and so. But the thing with them is they did flop everything. You know, um, uh, Tezuka's eight-volume Life of the Buddha is reversed so that it goes Western, left to right. Um, That was not my decision, although I didn't disagree with it, per se. Those books form a beautiful, (laughs) when you put them on the shelf, it's really awesome. (laughs) Yeah, he grows up, yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful series. Especially great to give to kids. Oh yeah, no. But anyway, th- it, that was always left to right. Now, now, now they are doing some of the uh, manga in its original right to left. 
let's talk about photographing the comics. When yes. You're, when you're photographing something that's a $500 a shot, mm -hmm. turning those pages and, and getting them photographed must be pretty scary. Well, this is yet another uh, uh, instance of God bless Saul Ferris because um, he basically said, you know what? Do what you gotta. Wow. Uh, uh, which basically meant, I mean, these, you know, the, these these books that, I mean, were done on very, uh, what can I say, inexpensive paper, very coarse newsprint, and um, they're in varying shades of uh, uh, states of, of good and and frankly bad condition. So we were we had to lay them as flat as possible often with a sheet of glass, you know, and. Um, we didn't, to my mind, ruin anything, but um, there's certain collector mentalities where, you know, oh my God, you know, you can't do that. Yeah, um, untouched, pristine, yeah, no. Right, I, I, yeah, I, that just was not part of the equation with this. As a book collector, I share some of those mentalities. Right. I, I totally understand. Now, um, the photographs we see in the book, uh, I just want to talk about the the work that we see the photographs of the toys mm -hmm. you you've worked with extensively I'm presuming beyond mm -hmm. just the photograph do you are you using Photoshop what are you using to, to, to play with some of those images in terms of the toys I'm I don't do any Photoshop work whatsoever Wow now if the that's up to Jeff the photographer mm -hmm. and he will um, he'll dodge and burn a little bit in Photoshop. But um, I don't do anything. Now, w what I did in terms of the comics mm -hmm. is once we had all of Jeff's photo files for that, I did take it upon myself to go in and in Photoshop remove all the Japanese dialogue, mm -hmm. which I thought would be a sort of pleasant therapeutic thing to do, you know, sort of like mowing the lawn. You know, you don't have to really <laughs> think about what you're doing. And I was completely, totally wrong. Um because there's all sorts of different, it's very, very easy to do that badly so that you can tell when you're cloning it out. So you have, to, you know, it's like you're constantly having to dis make decisions about which kind of textures to leave or, or take away or it was just, it was nuts. It uh, was nuts. Now the images of the pages on the books, those are the, that's just the straight photograph. Of, I mean, that's the way the paper looks. It's the way the paper looks. Wow. Yeah. That's, in, that's incredible. It's beautifully photographed. It really feel like you've got the old book in right. front of you. Now you made a, an interesting decision when you took that one, having taken the Japanese dialogue out, you and Anne Ishii from uh, Vertical Inc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, did the translation. Yeah. Talk about translating these comics. Well, she 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 did the real translation. Mm -hmm. Um I did take a translation credit behind her because what she she did what I asked her to do, which was she basically literally translated everything. Mm -hmm. Uh she's Japanese American herself, uh and you know, loves comics and was really into it. But what I was what I found as I was, you know, putting in the translation into the the final layout i found myself then because I'm, I'm also a writer i've published two novels so i found myself editing what she did and in some ways retranslating the translation mm -hmm. um because the sort of often i was finding that characters were were so literally 
describing what you're already seeing, mm-hmm. uh, it became silly and not in, and not in an interest any kind of interesting way. Mm-hmm. So if Clayface is crashing through the wall and Batman and Robin are looking at this happening, Robin will exclaim, Clayface is crashing through the wall. You know, so there you have your, you know. So, so instead I would make him just sort of exclaim like, oh no, or, you know, th- something like that. Or at some point a character will say, you know, this dangerous situation sure is dangerous. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, yeah. that just doesn't help anything but that's what they were saying you know so and uh and little things like like that um really interesting phonetic things that she was finding like um you know somebody's talking about alien life liquid and somebody's talking about um you know a a special machine called the bionoformer and uh, but that's sort of referred to as different kinds of things throughout the story. So then, d- do we keep calling it the Bionoformer or what? You know, I love the Bionoformer. I know. The it's, it, that, there will be a band called Bionoformer. You know, before the end of the year, I'm sure. <laughs> Good. Well, maybe I'll go see them. <laughs> um, one of the things you did, and, and this was to, um, you didn't hand letter this. And, but right. I love the font you choose. <laughs> right. Was, tell us a little bit about that decision. Well, you know, I. I really thought hard about this. There's a whole... I mean, for us comics purists, we like to see it hand... We like everything Mm -hmm. hand-lettered, which takes a lot of time and and actually a a good bit of skill. To have this entire book hand-lettered would have been cost-prohibitive and time-prohibitive, frankly. Mm -hmm. And even though you have your, your Japanese kanji there... It was all typeset. Hmm. It was all typeset back then. So hmm. I thought, all right, so we're going to we're going to typeset all the dialogue. But what I w- what I very consciously chose not to do was to use a computer font that mimics comics lettering because there are quite a few of them now. Hmm. And but you know, to me they are the typographic equivalent of a bad toupee. <laughs> you know, it's the, you can tell. Uh-huh. You can just tell and it kind of takes away from the experience to me so i decided you know we'll just go bald you know we'll go natural and bald and with a very simple what we call gothic sans serif typeface which also happened to be called gotham which which is actually purely a coincidence but sort of nice and so so really it's a very sort of pared down typeface almost like an old-fashioned telegram and I have to say that that in terms of the reading experience, reading it, it, it makes it a, quite a pleasure. It's very easy to read with, with regards to the way it's typeset. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And, and now, uh, w- having got it translated, photographed mm-hmm. on the pages, let's talk a little bit about the actual stories, which I th- found really fascinating. It's yeah. very, very different from American Batman. Very different. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, he... I did do this interview with him um, mm-hmm. via this go-between. This is Jiro Ku- uh, Kuwara. Yes, I did interview with the, the artist who also wrote and adapted. Mm-hmm. I mean, they basically gave him a stack of American Batman comics and said, you know, this is your style guide. Mm-hmm. This is what these what's going on. Now you take what you want and leave what you want and, you know, do what you want. So 
he had said that if he could have, he would have uh, taken time off and taught himself how to draw like an American. Mm -hmm. But there was no time to do that. And to which I say, thank God there wasn't time to do right. that. Because no, that's what makes beautiful. these so wonderful. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he did is he made Robin a little kid again. I, this is one of my favorite versions of Robin ever. He's so competent. I mean, <laughs> competent. <laughs> I, I mean, he he does. He he's he's effective. But you know, it's it's like the good old original Robin. Mm -hmm. He's this spunky little, you know, ten or twelve year old kid or whatever he is, and uh -huh. and uh, it's really kind of of sweet. And I love the way that Kawada draws him, and and uh, he's just really kind of neat to have around. Mm -hmm. And because of, by that time in America. You know, Dick Grayson was like going off to college mm -hmm. in the Batman storyline. So you've got, you know, you've got your, you know, young Robin and then the villains. He, the only American villain he chose to work with was Clayface. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's because, you know, Clayface can come, can turn into whatever he imagines he can turn into which basically gave kuwata an excuse to draw animals mm -hmm. um it's i think it's quite evident just from the work in the batman volume that he loves to draw animals yeah and he's quite good at it oh he's very good at it and so so we kept clayface and then made up all of his own other kinds of uh of villains but what i what what i really like and i think i would have really liked if i was a kid reading this is that even though there is a sort of outward charm, un undeniable charm in the way he's drawing and the way that the characters look. There's this also this whole sort of Dick Tracy side of things where, um, you know, the villains, the villains actually are really mean and and they want to kill Batman and Robin. You know, this isn't a game to them. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know what? Hold still, because I'm going to aim this gun at you and I'm going to fire it. <laughs> um, uh, it's, and so there is this kind, there's a real edge to it, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, which, which really was sort of lacking, certainly lacking in the Batman TV show, mm -hmm. you know, here, you know, it was all so silly and Batman and Robin would get stuffed into a giant milkshake so that they, you know, try to freeze them to death or something, you know, which is all just for set piece show. And that's, uh. that's its own kind of thing. But this, I think, you know, Kawada really wanted to traffic in a more sort of, I think, exciting kind of narrative. And, and I, I thought the through line for a lot of these, they, they are very kind of, I think, more science fictional than most of the Batman stuff. I mean, we, we have, you know, Mad Professors, Clayface, and this a shape-shifting kind of uh, villain. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a couple of shape-shifters. Could you talk about the importance of that maybe in Japanese culture? Is, is there <laughs> something in there that, that we don't know about? Well, I don't know if there's anything there that we don't know about, but I think, um, you know, again, if we're going to go back to the movies and ripping off concepts, Clayface actually has been around in the DC universe since the 40s. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he, he was in various carnations. The initial carnation of Clayface, he was not a shapeshifter mm -hmm. that I remember. But the second incarnation in the 50s was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is Terminator 2. Oh, wow, I never thought about that. Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, hello. <laughs> and, you know, and I guess, 
I guess they put in enough of their Cameron put in enough of his own sort of take on it that they didn't get sued. But but really, it is. I mean, that's what it is. Well, he wasn't going after Harlan Ellison either. <laughs> right. Oh, God. <laughs> um, one of the things that that I I thought was kind of interesting was that um, in some of these panels there's not a lot of difference between Batman and some of the, the villains. They're, the villains have that kind of, you know, the, the high ears and stuff. Could you talk about that, that he really blurs the, the boundaries between the villains and the good guys? Yeah, he does. And and uh, there's once in the, one of the Clayface stories, um, you have Clayface basically masquerading as Batman. So so that actually is a classic situation mm-hmm. of like, oh my God, Batman's fighting Batman, which is the real one. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other stories that didn't make it into this volume that also have that theme in them. And uh, there's actually one that instead of Catwoman, we get Catman. And he actually looks frankly, like a cooler version of Batman because he's got a similar sil- silhouette, but he's just black. I mean, there's like eye slits and that's it. You can't, it's hard to sort of like see the contours of his arms and, and legs and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, that, it's actually a very good, interesting thing to point out is that a lot of the villains in, in their own way somehow often sort of resemble Batman if you squint a little bit. And um, you were talking about uh, Ape Man, and we uh, we actually see Doctor Gorilla, Professor Gorilla, mm-hmm. Doctor Gorilla mm-hmm. also has a kind of a similar thing happening, if I seem to recall, where you know rebuild uh, somebody experimenting on themselves. Well, it was it was somebody. Um, there, there's usually a ubiquitous professor figure yeah, in like all of the stories. Uh, they just change the name. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Doctor Denton or Professor whatever, or it's or it's usually just the professor. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this Professor Gorilla story, um, <clears throat> what he's trying to do, what this professor is trying to do, is. Um, is export the strength of a gorilla into his own body because mm-hmm. he's a real geeky pencil neck kind of guy and he wants to become strong. So he uses the bionoformer <laughs> to um, somehow, you know, electronically put uh, this gorilla's strength into his body, which he does. He's successful. But what he doesn't realize, of course, is that there's been an exchange and that his genius has gone into the brain of the gorilla. And now it's like, it's like awakenings for this gorilla who becomes, <laughs> you know, this sentient genius. Now, this is a concept that that was originated in the Flash comics with a villain called the Gorilla Grodd. Mm-hmm. And so whether Kawada knew about that or not, I don't know. But it's it's pretty much the same thing. And so you but the the interesting thing is that this gorilla once he gains this knowledge and this mental acuity suddenly decides that he's basically going to become you know this terrorist activist for animal rights and he is just going to cause absolute mayhem to to humans uh in the name of revenge on on uh the humans you know subjugation of of animals um, so again, there, there's something of, of Kawada making a certain kind of statement there uh, about this that you know um, we don't we mistreat the animal kingdom and we sh- you know we need to 
we need to recognize this and, and rectify it. You know, one of the things that makes this book so good is the, uh, the visual dynamic style of the way it's laid out in graphics and, and interspersed with the cover pages, with the Japanese lettering where we'll see, see the, it just looks really, uh, it's very striking. Could you talk about, a, as a designer, do you like, uh, I'm, I'm, it seems like you almost would do, would do like a flip book where you would <laughs> like animate it and see, see the kind of the action that you're creating for, for the, in a visual style for the reader. Well, yeah, it, it has a very, very kinetic energy to it. Um, he's really, really good at fight scenes. Mm, mm. You just get completely caught up in it in, in a way that I, that I didn't, you usually don't detect in American comics at that time. In terms of the layout, yeah, I mean, you, you want to move it along. You want to, um, you know, you're sort of training the eye of, of, of the reader. And, and the reader, again, has to acclimate to this right-to-left thing. And I think I think you do. I mean, uh, the, the early reports from readers have have said, you know, I, you get used to that very quickly. And, and I think one thing too. I think his style is a lot less cluttered than than a, a lot of American styles that I've seen. Yeah, there is a there's a kind of lovely simplification of things. We're talking about some real cultural ephemera from the '60s from another country. Yet somehow it's so compelling. Do you, do you know why something that happened 40 years ago <laughs> in another country for a year that barely seen by a few teenage or you know preteen Japanese boys right. all of a sudden becomes so interesting to us now? Well, it's interesting to me, and I and and one of the well, first I'm a Batman freak, so for me, ba literally discovering this material would be like being a Beatles fan and discovering an entire album of Beatles music that nobody, that somehow got recorded and then swept under the rug and, and never released. It's that exciting to me. And, and uh, you know, as, as, much, uh, as much as this is a novelty, and it is a novelty, it's more than that because Kuwata was so good. He was a, he's a, a really damn good cartoonist, and he... I think it's evident in the work when you look at it that he decided, all right, if I'm going to take this on, I'm going to do my best and, and really bring my game to it. And, and he did. And, but the other thing was, you know, I think this is great. I think it's anybody who's in, interested in good comics, uh, especially good vintage comics, I would think would be at least interested in looking at it. But there was something of a gamble. It's like, is this too niche? Is this too weird? So I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it certainly makes sense to me, and I think it's beautiful and and uh, and, a, and a remarkable revelation to, to Batman and Batman fans and comics fans. I mean, so far, the, like the overwhelming mantra has been, "I had no idea this existed." I, I think what's it's interesting to us on, on two levels, just in terms of the subject and, and in terms of you know seeing this different vision of Batman, but also the kind of like excavation of this cultural artifact from another time that, as you say, we had no idea it existed. And it's really, I've just found it extremely compelling. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's compelling to me. And there's a, there's a, a nice coda, actually, um, in, in what will become part of Batmanga 2 if we are so privileged to do it. Uh, one of my first questions, once we established 
a link to, to Jiro Kawada, my, one of my first questions to him was, do you have any of the original art? And basically, he wrote back and via this intermediary and said, of course I don't. <laughs> this was 40 years ago. You know, the publisher almost never returned original art. You know, this is a, this is a big, big sort of like mark of shame in the comics industry in general, especially of 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, look, th this really is the rightful property of the artist and mm -hmm. should be returned. And so, um, so we establish, okay, you don't have the original art. All right. And so... Uh, next question. Um, well, uh, early last summer, in mid-June, uh, once this, once Batmanga had basically been put to bed and was off to the printer to be separated, I got an email from this from this woman who was representing him, and the subject line was "Kuwata Batman artwork found." Wow! <laughs> Where? Exclamation point. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, you know, double click on that. Um, and basically he started asking around. He, he started asking Shonen King, like, hey, do you have any of this? You know, please look. Now, I can only begin to imagine in my head what an archive for something like Shonen King would be like. I mean, you know, you're talking about thousands and thousands of pages of comic art being produced every year mm. um difficult to keep a tra track of even if you have a handheld scanner and a barcode reader. right <laughs> um so basically th that long story short is that they returned something like a hundred and some pages of of his artwork of batman artwork wow and uh and I was privileged to be able to to buy a good chunk of it from Mr. Kawada him, himself. And it's absolutely astonishing because you get to see what the printing process that they used did to it, uh, which is often take away, you know, some of the nuance at least. But it's, it's always a revelation to see original comic book artwork uh, compared to what you see on a printed page. So anyway, um, in Batmanga 2, we would finally be able to show, you know, the, the, the pen strokes and the, the brush strokes and the way this stuff really, really looked the way he did it before it went off for production. You know, as a guy who collects Batman, it must be really, um, make you feel really good to have your passion, see it out there in a printed form in, the, in this really gorgeous book. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. I mean, I'm, you know, as much as I use the web as much as anybody else, I'm really a print guy. Mm -hmm. I'm a print guy. I'm a book guy. I want to hold a book. I want to page through a book. I want to smell the ink. Um, I want to see the colors. Uh, and and uh, yes, it's a, I would say it's enormously satisfying. Um, my, my regret with this book is that it should be, it should literally be twice as long. Well, we'll look forward to part two. I hope so. I've been speaking with Chip Kidd. His new book is Bat Manga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. Thank you for joining me, Chip. Well, thank you very much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.